All right, let's pray one, one more time. Heavenly Father, as, as Eric said rightly, Father, we thank you so much for your love for us and the love which we have for one another because you first loved us. We thank you for your word, for your blessing on it, and, and uh, we are not at all thinking that we're the only game in town. We know that, that you have your people everywhere. And so I pray for your blessing on all places uh, in our, just our little town here, in our city, in our county, our state, our region, our, our country, and even around the world as believers meet today, that you would open your word and open many hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Eric and I did not get together ahead of time and, and planned um, necessarily for his opening prayer. But his opening prayer is, is spot on this morning. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised, right? Uh, we're going to talk uh, particularly about love this morning. Okay? Because love is the foundation of this upper room discourse. All five chapters rest or you might say, grow out of the soil of divine love. Okay? And so that's kind of where we're really going to be focusing this morning as we <clears throat> looked, um, we turn to the themes of the discourse this morning. That's the last little section on your notes. And there isn't a lot there because I, uh, and I, and I, we spent our whole time last time, you know, going through the majority of the notes, which is, you know, the first maybe two and a half pages. Uh, so I, I do want to take another kind of a run at that, but not in the detail that we did last time, just to refresh your minds. What I'm trying to do here is, um, you know, and, and, I, and, and we've done this as we've gone through the gospel, uh, is to occasionally sort of back up and say, okay, let's look at, at what we're going to see here next in the context of, A, the, the whole gospel itself, sort of what has what's John's flow of thought, what's he doing up to this point, and and then also uh, in the historical context about what's happening. You know, maybe it's remember when we studied uh, chapters seven through ten that those happen against the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles, and we took time to look at the Feast of Tabernacles and how those two signs of the water and the light, particularly feed into the text, right? It, 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 you know, chapter 7, when Jesus says, uh, you know, anyone's thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Now it takes on some significance. You see the backdrop against that water ceremony that they would have. The same with the lights that they would light every night of that feast. And he stands up and says, I am the light of the world. And so um, there's context within, uh, you know, the textual and, and, and historical um, cultural context and then also within the context of what the other Gospels have to say. And, and so that, that particularly, that second point, the context of the other Gospels is going to become increasingly important as we move on from this point forward in John. Okay, So just be expecting that, especially when we get into chapters 18 and 19, and we're, we're talking about his, his arrest and his uh, so-called trials, right? I like to call them appearances because the trial actually, the real trial, even though he wasn't there, happened in chapter 11, didn't it? Right? When St. Peter got together and decided, yeah, okay. They, they, anyway, so his, his, his arrest, his trials, and then his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection 
we're going to to refer a lot to the other gospels too. I'm going to try to bring them in to do that here. Okay. But that starts with this, and this is something that, as I mentioned to you last time, <clears throat> I've not seen a lot of or heard a lot of sermons or lessons on you know the timeline and what, what was happening with the discourse. All four gospels touch on it in some way, and so that's what we did last time is take time to go through that and one of the one of the rewards that we that I, in fact i would say this is sort of the main um the, at least in my way of thinking okay well, there's there's two things i guess that we get out of this all four of them touch on this fact that the, that jesus essentially took uh you know a lot of people call this the last supper it really should be called the last passover that's the better way of saying it okay um it's the last legitimate Passover. Jews still celebrate Passover today. Um, and, and that's fine. It's not that you can't do. God didn't say thou shalt not. But what he does, what Jesus does, is he basically says there in what we today call communion, right? These elements here, this bread and this cup that you guys have been drinking from the time you were knee high to a grasshopper, uh, are, are the symbol of my body. Right, and so he transforms that Passover feast, which was, in one sense, looking back to the deliverance that God provided for the Jewish forebearers out of slavery in Egypt. Right, but it is also looking forward to the deliverance from sin. You know that that the death angel <clears throat> would pass over. Every believer who has the blood of Jesus applied to them, right? He is the Lamb of God. He's the, he is the Passover Lamb. In fact, Paul says that in his writings that Christ is our Passover. Right? He is our Passover. And so Jesus takes, what he effectively does is he says, okay, this feast was the shadow. It was the, it was the um, anniversary in advance. Only God could do it. We're celebrating our anniversary today. We're looking back at an event that happened 29 years ago, okay? But God celebrates anniversaries in advance. Have you ever thought about that? It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> which means, and by the way, there's more in the prophetic calendar which hasn't been fulfilled yet. So it kind of makes me curious to know what the Day of Atonement is, for example. Yeah. Jesus didn't die on the Day of Atonement, so what is it? No. Um, <clears throat> You're totally distracted now. You're going to pay attention to I shouldn't have said that. But anyway, <laughs> no, I'm with you. All right. So, um, anyway, so the Passover is, uh, and incidentally, too, as I mentioned, John really kind of starts, kicks off Jesus's ministry. The other gospels kick it off at John the Baptist's um, baptism. And, and John does talk about that. But John really sort of opens Jesus' public, you might say, his sort of his. If, if John the Baptist could be likened to a soft opening, his official grand opening of his ministry was on a Passover when he went to the temple and cleansed it, right? And that's in chapter two of the gospel. So, anyway, Passovers are very important in the gospel of John at the beginning and now here at the end. They kind of, kind of start and, and finish like bookends of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus is transforming this feast, okay? And so this is a very important time, and I wanted to take the time to, to 
bring in the other gospels, what they say, and feed into this because, and again, the more I study it, and you know, I've been through this with the other Bible study already and have some notes. And as I go back again and I'm going back through it, I'm like, wow, there's so much here. It's just mind blowing. It's just so rich. It's so full of truth and just amazing things just happening at multiple levels. And I'm, I'm like, Lord, I don't know if I'm even able to articulate, you know, what all is here. And so that's why we pray that the Holy Spirit will take this and, and go beyond the limitations, very, lim very limited limitations of the, of the speaker and all of us as we study it. Um, so there's a lot here, and we're, and we're not going to be in a big hurry to go through it because there's so much here. But before we dive into those details and so on, there are these <clears throat> these Theme, these things that are happening. So in real space and time, you know, uh, Jesus was there and his disciples were there and actual things were happening, right? So we're, we've been looking at that and looking at this cultural context. And you remember back in chapter 12, actually chapter 11, John sets up everything that's happening um, from here because uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And it's very clear that in God's providence, you had a very a rather large and influential crowd to see that, right? Witnesses. Well, they in turn are, are believing in the Lord, very, very excited. And they set the stage about two months later for Passover as faithful Jews are beginning to stream into Jerusalem, right? You didn't just everybody fly in one day. They would be coming in over several days. And, and as, as they are coming in, the word is spreading and the excitement is growing and, and the anticipation and, uh, and so and that helps us understand why they were so excited when he rode into Jerusalem. And, and, you know, more so than the other Gospels. They don't really give us that background. <clears throat> and so there's all this buzz and excitement, and the disciples are on cloud nine, right? Um, and I, uh, so I haven't uh, said this at this point, but the scholars call what the disciples and Popularly, all the Jewish people, really, in one form or another, had of their Messiah. It's it's summarized as a triumphalistic view of the Messiah, right? So we've been talking about this. So there's your term, okay? If you want to write it down, um, summarize it. Triumphalistic. What it means is they were looking for a Messiah who was here to fulfill all of those Old Testament. Uh, uh, first the covenants to their fathers, right, and then reiterated uh, by the prophets and expanded on by the prophets, where where essentially they would uh, the Messiah would bring the kingdom and that he would stay. Remember back in chapter twelve, they're still confused about. Well, wait a minute, you're going, you're saying you're going to be lifted up, which was the euphemism for crucifixion, and but we thought that the Messiah would stay, right? The Son of David would come and stay. So that's a hint at this triumphalistic view of the Messiah that they all had, okay? That, that he would come and, and the lion would lay down with the lamb and they wouldn't make train for war anymore. You know that, right? He, he'd come and he'd rule the nations with a rod of iron. Uh, and, you know, he, he'd subdue the enemies. He'd finally bring Rome or whoever it was that was in charge and had been giving Israel a hard time. Yeah. This, is the, this is the mindset that the nation had had. They didn't really understand portions of scripture like Isaiah 53. They didn't until today. They don't really. Right? And they didn't really understand, you know, Psalm 22 or, 
or other texts that talk about this suffering servant. Who is this? Right? <clears throat> and so the, the disciples are no exception to that triumphalistic view. And so when the crowds are all amped up and they're excited and, you know, all of this, they're coming into this upper room Passover so full of themselves, right? And that's what we're trying to show with this, with this whole, when you put all the Gospels together, especially Luke's account where he says this dispute broke out among them as to who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Why did they say, see, we read that, at least I do, before you start studying it in more detail, and you think, oh, they're thinking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom like, you know, thousands of years now. They didn't have that viewpoint. They were thinking, like, after the Passover, man, we're going to get this thing on, and I'm going to be at the right hand. No, I am. Right? And they're all in this whole argument, right? Uh, that's why uh, James and John, I don't, it's not clear whether the mother did it on her own or whether they asked her to do it, but she went to the Lord and, remember that? And they said, mm. have one of my sons on your right and head yeah. on your left. Yeah. <laughs> Strange mother. <laughs> Lord, I just talked about that the other day. You know, moms, you understand that, right? Proud of your yeah, children. Yeah, I want my kids up there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And then what did the others do? Oh, yes, please. You go right ahead. And get all mad. How dare you? You know? Well, that's what's going on here in Luke's account. It's printed on your notes, right? It's printed the first page of your notes. Um, and, and then Jesus, Jesus rebukes them for that. And, and I believe... When you put this whole timeline together, and I was re-listening re to John MacArthur on that this week, and I was glad to hear him say that he, he also agrees with that. That's probably uh, likely that this dispute, which, can I say this as we, as we continue to look at the sort of 10,000-foot view of this upper room before we land and really start rolling into the details? Um, that, that, that not only is the Lord and the Father, you know, the, Jesus and the Father working there, Satan is also working. Okay? And his name is going to show up at several places throughout these chapters. He's going to be called the devil. He's going to be called Satan. He's going to be called the ruler of this world. Okay? But he does show up. And, and I, 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 text doesn't say directly, but you can kind of see the invisible by its effects. And, and not only is... The text does say that he was directly working with Judas, right? That he had put it in Judas's mind before to, to betray him, and then and, uh, and then it says when Jesus, uh, Judas took the the food, the sop from uh, Jesus, that Satan entered him, right? And we'll talk about all of that. And again, Satan put thoughts in your head, apparently so. Um, and then and how you act on it, but anyway. Not, and so it says it explicitly for Judas, but the others were vulnerable too. And their pride is all over this, right? This triumphalistic view of the Messiah. And remember, this is also behind uh, Jesus' rebuke to Peter, right? Where he says uh, <clears throat> that the Lord is predicting his death and all of that. And, and Peter says, it shall never happen, Lord, no way. You know, it's a very strong you know, these guys might strong negative in the Greek, right? No, no, I'm talking about his denial. I'm talking yeah. about earlier in his ministry when Jesus rebuked him and said, "Get behind, behind me, me what? Satan." Okay, and I always wondered, oh, what's that? What's that? But what he's really saying is, 
And, and remember, chapter 8, Jesus had already told them, you're sons of the devil. Meaning that by this point, even though God had instituted this system of sacrifices and the calendar that they followed, including Passover and all of that, even though God had instituted it and, and had uh, been there to at the commissioning of the tabernacle and then later the temple, right? Actually, in Ezekiel's vision, the glory had already left the temple a while back, okay? But they still had this system cranking it out. Well, when the Holy Spirit left, guess who moved in? The ruler of this world, he's called, right? And so, meaning the ruler of this system, that religious system that they were in, inculcated in, raised in, they thought it was of God, but it was really the world. And so it became the seedbed then for him to work in their egos, and, 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 and they, you can see that come out. And then right after he says, this is not to be this way with you, he gets up and he washes their feet. And he illustrates that. It's so beautiful. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Okay. So that's kind of where we are. Um, <clears throat> we talked about our conclusions. Last time, I won't go through all of that. I do want to say this, though, as we, again, as we're, you know, 10,000-foot views, we're looking at the broader scope of the upper room. Um, John MacArthur points out, and I thought it was a good point, that, um, that um, the, the, the events that were happening right before this, so so a tenth of Nisan, Jesus rides in to Jerusalem. Remember, that's the day then the, when when the father of a Jewish household would would choose the Passover lamb, and that's the father saying, "Here's my Passover lamb on the tenth of Nisan." Well, then it's not till the fourteenth where he the, the lamb is is killed and the Passover is, is observed. So you have those days in between, and so. Uh, What's, what is the lamb doing? The lamb is living with the family in the house. It's very explicit, right? And so what does Jesus do as the lamb of God, as the Father has chosen his Passover lamb? He goes to the house. He's in the temple. He cleanses the temple. And then he, he heals them, and he teaches them, and he rebukes all the leaders. And what's interesting is that, that when you read, again, John doesn't dwell on all of that. You know, it's, it's a very short, remember in chapter 12, we looked at this very short kind of condensed summary of what was happening during that time, and really a call for salvation. You walk in the light while you have it, right? And, and, and so, but the other Gospels go in there, and you this is where you get, you know, Matthew 23. You know, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, all of this, you know, really strong language that Jesus gives in, in condemning that religious system run by the devil and marked by hatred, okay? He really opens up both barrels with that. It stands a stark contrast to the chapters we're about to enter, which are all about the kingdom of God and love and sacrifice for one another. Amazing. And, and blessings, right? He's cursing them, that system. Woe to you. This thing is going to fall down. In fact, that's when he predicts. the the. It's in that context that he predicts the fall of the of the temple, right? Not one stone is going to be left upon the other. And then, by contrast, come the blessings of the kingdom in the text that we're looking at. It's really amazing. Okay. 
And so what he what John says is these chapters are like sort of almost like the temple in a sense where chapters 13 through 16 are the the holy place. OK. And then in chapter 17, you have the holy of holies. And I would kind of, I would agree with that. I think that I think especially when we get to chapter 17, man, it, it's you almost feel I mean, it, it almost feel like I take your shoes off when you read it. It's like, wow, this is this is holy ground. Here is an inter-trinitarian converse, a private conversation between the father and the son. And it's almost like a child who's, you know, supposed to be in bed, but they're listening to what mommy and daddy are talking about in private, you know. Um, and, and you feel but yet he prays for us there too. And I thought that was good insight from John. But <clears throat> I'm looking at this, and I think there's another way to look at, at this portion of scripture. And I would actually include chapter 18 as well. What we're seeing here is the prophet, the priest, and the king. Okay? Here's Jesus. The office, the role of a prophet was to stand with his back to God and his face to the people representing the interests of God, the message of God to the people, right? Oftentimes the message, watch this now, the message of the prophet would be confirmed with a foretelling of future events, right? It doesn't, I mean, we often equate, uh, good morning, good to see you guys. You all need notes? Introduction? It's okay if you do. I think that's okay. Yeah. We're not condemning you. Maybe David. You need notes, brother? You get. The notes she received had some missing parts, so that's good. What's that? She said the notes she had had some missing parts. So there you go. Okay. There you go. There's a complete French copy. So, prophet, priest, and king, okay? Chapters 13 through 16 are Jesus the prophet speaking to his disciples about his father. And in that, he's going to give them, in that context, he's going to give them a number of predictions about the future, both within the coming hours, coming months, and coming years about persecution that's going to happen and things like that okay then in chapter 17 he takes off if you will his prophet hat and puts on his priestly hat and he goes into like the priest would go into the holy of holies and intercede so that if the prophet has his back to god and his face to the people the priest is the other way around he is has his back to the people and his face to god interceding uh, representing them, as it were, before God, right? And interceding for them, uh, you know, on, on, on before the throne of God. And, uh, and so he does that in chapter 17. And then in chapter 18, and I, when I studied this, I, I was like, wow, why all of a sudden all this stuff about the king? And then it dawned on me. Because, because Pilate, the conversation that Jesus has with Pilate, it's not that the other Gospels don't touch on Matthew particularly. It's all about Jesus as the king, right? But what John really focuses, all the things that he could focus on in the arrest and the, the so-called so trials of Jesus, 
particularly in his conversation with Pilate, you'll read all of this thing about the king, right? I'll be the king. You're the king. And the king, uh, the, the, you might say it was the legal strategy of the religious leaders to try to persuade uh, Pilate as the Roman representative in favor of crucifixion. And what was their strategy? He claimed to be a king, and he's a threat to your authority. You need to put him down. That's essentially what it was. Now, Pilate wasn't buying that. It's interesting to watch this, okay? He didn't buy that. And, and, and when we get there, we'll see that. But what I want to show you is, again, a 10,000-foot view. When, when I saw that, I was like, oh, yes, it all fits. It's really quite amazing. Prophet, priest, and king. Right on through chapter 18. Okay. All right. Um, any thoughts about that? I've been doing a lot of talking here, and I need to get a swallow of water and let it's not all about me, right? So. Well, so just, I'm just, I just want to say that you're giving us a lot of insight. <clears throat> I thank you for that. Not all me. I know, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, this just is fascinating. I love, I love to to see that because there's. There's so much. I mean, the mind of God is just like, you know, and, and we, we know that. Our, our doctrinal statements say that, you know, and oh, yeah, I'm, I check the box. I believe that. You know, but when you really see it and you start to really dig into the word and you see, wow, and you start seeing the culture and, the, you know, how, how the Lord in his sovereignty prefigures all of these things in, in the Jewish ceremonies that they didn't even really understand. They're kind of going through the routine and they're doing this thing, but, but Jesus comes and he fulfills that and he shows them, and especially post-resurrection, uh, he, he spends a lot of time, I believe, before his ascension, when he's gathered with them in, in groups, right, and he's teaching them all of those things. And in fact, he's actually going to predict that he's doing it in our chapters. The time is going to come, it's near the end of it, talking to them. The time is going to come when I'm not going to speak to you in, in, in figurative language, but I'll speak to you plainly. What's he talking about? He's talking about post-resurrection, pre-ascension. So that's what I mean. Anyway, so I'm hoping, I hope this helps. I'm trying not to give you too much. It's a lot to absorb, I understand. We, we will, we will as we go through this, uh, we'll continue to get those viewpoints and remind you, you know, so, and, and you'll see it as we go through. All right, so let's look at the themes of the discourse. I got five of them here, and really the way this is structured, um, uh, to be honest with you, I, when I typed these up, um, these were just having spent a lot of time in the chapters, and they were just sort of flowing out from stream of consciousness, kind of, more or less. Um, but in God's providence, um, the first one is the first one, is the most important. And, and all the rest of them kind of flow out of that. The key word there is love, okay? So let's look at this. <clears throat> Jesus is leaving. This is point number, number one, last uh, page of your notes, right down at the bottom, themes of the discourse, okay? Are with me? Jesus is leaving. That is, he's leaving earth, okay? And they will need to love one another in his stead, in his place, in the same way that he has loved each of them. Okay? 
Um, and that and, 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 and Jesus's concern here is not just, oh, you know, after the Holy Spirit comes and you all become apostles and you got this whole big church thing going and it's growing, you got this big missions thing going on and all that. That's when you no no no. But he's that's gonna apply then too. But what he's very, very, very concerned about, he says it to them, and he's gonna say it to his father as well in his prayer, is that they be preserved through the coming hours and days when when it's going to be extremely, extremely dark and depressing for them. And they will be tempted to pull a Judas and, and apostatize and leave. Okay. And and so what he is saying to them is. You know, yes, in the years to come, you're going to be persecuted. All of that. And you guys will need to lean on each other and lean into each other and love each other as I have loved you. But in these hours to come, you're going to have to do that. It's going to start now. It's got to start like in this upper room, right? Which is why I think he, he takes that dispute so seriously. You know, it wasn't just a casual rebuke. You know, you read it in Luke and, and, it can almost sound kind of casual. You know, the Gentiles act this way. You shouldn't do it that way. But then he gets up and, and he, he takes his, his robe of, of Lord and Rabbi off and puts on the servants. Such a visual, right? What's so taking, taking this role of a servant, putting it on, washing their feet, and then, and then going to all that trouble. And think about the kind of quietness in the room as he's doing yeah, that and shifting uncomfortably. And then Peter's little, you know, you're not going to do that for me and all that. You know, why go to all that? Why take all that time to do this? Right in the middle of him telling them about his betrayal. He interrupts that. Why? Because he's going to need them to be in a humble state, a repentant state, repent of that pride and understand, guys, I've been telling you about the way of the cross. Remember chapter 12, the seed has got to die before it produces fruit, you've got to do that. You've got to do it now, because in the coming hours, you're going to need to love each other like God loved you. Somebody wanted to say something. No, I just was saying that the, that the picture there of the silence is very, very powerful. He knew what he, what, who he was. He knew the things that were going on. It says. He got up, took off his feet, and they were sitting there probably looking at him. And, that's, that's, that's very... That's very dramatic. You can see that, right? Yeah, very dramatic. It's not a bumper sticker of theology. He, he really is it anybody else? That's good. I always thought Jesus' favorites were Peter, James, and John. Um, they thought so, too. Um, and, and, and there's a sense in which the Gospels... Um, let's not... Get too far down the road on that, but okay, they, no. but they are they are divided up into into groups. Okay, sometimes four groups of three, sometimes three groups of four. Andrew is sometimes included in that group. Um, Peter definitely was the spokesperson, no doubt about that, um, and they all knew it too. But the Lord, what John is going to say here, especially at, at the very beginning of chapter thirteen, we'll touch on that here. Briefly, but we'll look at it in more detail when we probably next time. It's going to say that he loved them. Many translations say to the end. Okay, and uh, the English there makes it sound like that he loved them until he died. He couldn't love them anymore. That's not what it means. 
indeed. Right? And, and Weiss translation, which I have with me this morning, I can bring up here, but when we get there, I'll read it for you. He makes it very clear. The way John MacArthur translates it, I like this. He says, he loved them to the max. Is a good modern equivalent. Meaning, he loved them to the fullest capacity that divine love can love. Okay? Meaning that it doesn't end. Okay? He has chosen to set his love upon them, and he loves them fully and completely. Unchanging. Unchanging. And get this unmixed, unmitigated love, meaning unlike our love that we practice, if we're really honest, and that we're used to receiving from others, you know, where, yeah, I love you if, or I love you because you do this for me, or if you, you know, right? It's mixed, right? Our love is mixed. Our love is, is complicated and mixed with Yes, I love you, but I kind of love this other thing too. And you know, love means more sometimes than I love you. And you know what I'm saying? Jesus wasn't like that. This was not a pretentious, uh, mixed, you know, hidden motive. You know, it wasn't a love where he's trying to to kind of pretend, you know, fake it till you make it kind of thing. No, he loved all of them to the max, to complete capacity as far as he could and unmixed with hidden alternate alternate uh, selfish motives right? all of them were. but he couldn't spend equal amounts of time with all of them so he had to choose some that he could really spend this inner circle and then others as well um, because just because of human limitations I was just thinking about uh, when uh, Jesus spoke to Peter uh, after the uh, resurrection three times he asked him do you love me and I just was thinking I, I have thought that you know Peter in his first two answers to do you, do you love me you know he was trying to convince Jesus that he really did love him in spite of his unloving act of denying him. Mm -hmm. But then that third time that Jesus asked, do you love me? <clears throat> Peter was really honest in his love mm -hmm. and said, well, I love you, but not the way I should. And that's the kind of love that we often have. You know, we, we want to say our love for Jesus is, you know, great. But very often it's it's not. It, it, it should be. It's mixed. It's mixed. Yeah. Yeah. And what a contrast that Peter is to the Peter a few chapters before, yeah. a few what weeks before, three weeks before maybe, uh, who was in both in the upper room and again in the garden where he gets even stronger. Though all the rest of them deny you, I will not deny you. I will go to death. I'll die with you, right? What a contrast. That uh, change that you're talking about in Peter, I think is uh, clearly a direct, direct result of the Lord choosing him and working in him because he knew what he was doing mm -hmm. in his life and his heart. I don't think it was that, he, that the Lord 
found Peter to be his favorite person and personality. I think he chose him to work in his life and to build him up to be a, an instrument. He worked it all yeah. up. And, and, and Peter probably would have been one of the very last that you would have. He was picked. A part of the most. If you were in Jesus' shoes, you know yes. what I'm saying? Yep. And you're picking, you've heard that yeah. before, and it's, but it's very true. The most problem. You, know, you um, wouldn't choose a rascal yeah, to be the leader. That's right. <laughs> the class clown, the one who's always, you know, foot and mouth. Not right. Some people capable of loving um, like Jesus loves because of sin. So I don't think that. You know, even though we love the Lord, we love the Lord with our limited, sinful nature. And I think that the day, you know, whenever we leave this earth, then that's whenever we'll be able to love yeah. like he did. Yeah. And, and I think about that sometimes because, you know, we can't love each other with a, a pure love either. And right. it's just all because of sin. That's what prevents us from really loving because we get our sin gets in the way mm -hmm. all the time yeah. of that purity. And so I And it was the same way with Peter. His sin got in the way. Yeah, I think yeah. Let's that. get specific with that sin and call it what it is. Yeah. 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 Selfishness. It's about me. It makes me happy. Yeah. I think that if if I thought of that Peter, James, and John were like his favorites, and that God picks favorites, I would, I wouldn't want anything to do with them, um, hmm. because I would, I, I would think, how can you say that you love me, and yet you pick other people over me? I mean, um, that is very frustrating to me. I've had that happen to me in other areas of my life before. And you know, you compete, 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 compete for attention. You know, after a while, you're just like, yeah, forget it. You know, uh, yeah. middle child problem, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, but so you know, I like to think that you know, it says that God looks <clears throat> and He judges men by their hearts. Mm -hmm. um, and to know that God looks in my heart is a whole lot better mm -hmm. than looking. Uh, at what I'm capable of or not capable of or whatever because it's his strength that helps me to do the things that he's so yeah I mean he sees my willingness and I think that has a lot to do with um, not being a favorite but what is accomplished through through me for him um, is my willingness to obey you know, some of them may have been a little more prideful than others. Some of them um, just have just were capable, I guess, capable uh, through through their own talents and different abilities and different things like that. God uses what we, you know, sometimes what's available to us. I don't know, but I'm just saying, whew, if I had to think that he was picking favorites, I'd be. I don't, I don't think he was picking those three as favorites. That's what more, I'm saying. Yeah, I know. I know you are. More for their gifts. But, but for a lot of people would would think that way. I, I think the gifts, their gifts, I think he was grooming them for leadership. Yeah. I'm just glad he's a hard knower because how many times do we see ourselves like, <laughs> look at, you know, yeah, look at me, you know, I'm having a quiet time. But you know what? I can't look at your heart. Thank goodness. 
Yeah. I can't look yeah. at nobody else. I'm glad you can't see my heart. Yeah. So it's between me and him, the sin I have in my life. That makes it special because who am I accountable to? Not to you, mm -hmm. not to Erica, Erica, anybody. I'm accountable for him. Not also. That's right. So my my sin in my life, in my heart, and I'm glad it's on a one on one basis because how would you like to wear a billboard all day long? This is my sin. Then you would be judged. You know what I'm saying? Then you would be judged by people. He is the one and only judge. But I'm just so glad that we are not hard knowers. All we have the fact of outside outward appearances, which sometimes put on a big facade. People think that they are believers and they're not believers. But we don't know the true heart. That's why we can never, never, never give up on people that we are continuing to pray for. Because we don't know what God's working in their lives. So, you know, and so just I am just overwhelmed knowing that He is a heart knower and He loves us for that. Amen. But doesn't He have favorites if He chooses some to be His children and others not? Uh oh. <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there because that's uh, how I see it. All right. Uh, <laughs> wow. He's sovereign. He's just not yeah. God is not. God is not unjust. God is not unjust. Right. His will. He chooses some before the foundation of the world and some he does not choose before the foundation of the world. That's a fact. Yeah. So that's, that's grace. A biblical fact. Yeah. The Bible says he's not a respecter of persons. And um, but at the same time, if you read different things in the Bible where it says, you know, um, David was, you know, a man after God's own heart, and you think and you look at different different um, parts of the Bible where he it, it seems like that he sure favored that person mm -hmm. over someone else. I don't know if he has favorites or not, but um, I think maybe he can love people differently, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I think it goes back to the sovereignty of God and, mm -hmm. and what his... His position on it is, you know, not really ours because we don't have the capacity to think about the kind of That's love true. that he has. Mm -hmm. You know, we think about it in human terms. So when we think about somebody being a favorite, we think about that in a bad light, you know, like they should you shouldn't have a favorite child, but do you, you know? <laughs> you know, if you really think of do you? I don't know. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I think I think I think what Vicky said is is worth repeating in, in the sense of, you know, here we are trying to understand the mind and the love of God, the heart, the mind and the heart of God, and that's it. And God is not like we are. Mm -hmm. This is this is something that I think, in one form or another, every human being has to come to grips with is that whatever your conception is of God or no God or whatever. Um, you are you you are in serious danger of inventing a God that looks more like you rather than the other way around. Yeah. yeah. And that's that is so I have to fight it all the time. All the time. And that's why I like that saying that I say to myself too, which is if you if your God always agrees with you, you have an idol. You know, because because you know, if uh oh, <laughs> you know, I, I I it's the real God that I want to be right before, not the God that I invented, and then feel good about that. You know what I'm saying? I feel like I'm justified because, anyway, there's a lot to say about all that, but let's get back to our topic in the next five minutes. <laughs> we'll touch on it, and, and we're going to have to, because there's so much here, okay? 
what I want to show you is the love of God uh, in this passage, okay? And particularly the Gospel of John. All right, so get this. All right. Some years ago, there was a popular bumper sticker going around Asheville and maybe other areas, but I saw it on several cars around. I don't see it anymore. It kind of came and went quickly, but it was pretty small, you know, maybe about yay big, three or four inches long. But it just simply said, love wins. You ever see those around? Mm -hmm. Love wins, okay? I was like, when I first saw it, okay, you know, I, I don't know, my brain is just wired this way. I like Sproul because of philosophical ideas, you know. Like, you know, just thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. Well, as I was studying the Gospel of John, I realized that the actual biblical phrase is love gives. That's biblical. Love wins, okay. Well, really, God wins, okay. Be probably more biblical way of saying it. But love gives, right? Love gives. And if you understand that, just keep those two words in your head. As we go through these chapters, it will unlock everything for you, okay? Because what Jesus is doing is he's giving. He's giving. He's giving. He's saying, oh, the Father's giving too. The Father's going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you a home in heaven. I go to prepare a place for you. You know, and love gives. It gives. You know, and so it, here's the thing. As we've said before many times, how do you make the invisible visible? By its effects. Love is invisible. You can't see it, right? You can say, I love you, but unless it's demonstrated, you have every right to question whether it exists, right? So love gives. It gives in some form or fashion. Maybe it gives actual gifts, okay? Like your daughter graduates and you give her a car or you give her money for a 529 for college or whatever, right? Uh, sometimes it's giving time to people, really listening to people. That's why I jump on some of you about listening and taking time to listen to people, right? Not just, you know, got to run, you know? All right, so um, love gives, you know, whether it's your time or you're giving wisdom or advice to somebody or you're giving uh, active service to somebody, whatever it is, right, it, it, the, the expression of giving comes and proves the reality of, the, of love. And nowhere is that more true than with God. So let me ask you this. Can you think of texts of Scripture that talk about God giving in a context of love as proof of his love? God so loved the world. Oh, for your thing, yeah. Wow. Oh, it's in our gospel. Hmm. What do you think? He gave up his life. He gave up his life? The verse, I, I was thinking of this just a few minutes ago. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we have yet sinners, he died for us. Exactly right. <clears throat> That's found. I don't know. Another verse. <laughs> Romans 5 8. Right? Yep, it's on my notes, actually. Romans 5 8. In fact, uh, back to your point, Vicki, um, just a few verses before Romans 5.8 where you said you don't have that love naturally. Romans 5.5 5 is one of the most undersung verses in Romans, but it's one of my favorites in Romans. Because right before he says that, that God demonstrated his love, right? That's, that's the effects, right? That's 
What he's saying is the cross is the ultimate effect of God's invisible love. If you doubt that God really loves you, look at the cross and see the extreme expense that God and, and, and that God went to to reconcile enemies, ungodly, weak sinners to himself. Right? Well, a few verses before that, he says, Paul says in, in Romans 5 5, that that same love demonstrated on the cross has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given. Uh-oh. What are you doing with that love that God has given you through the Holy Spirit? He's taken that same, because Vicki, you're right. We don't naturally have that kind of love. We just don't have it on our, we will not have, we, who loves like that, right? Who loves enemies like that? I don't, you don't, angels don't. Nobody loves like God loves. And so he takes his love, and through the Holy Spirit, he puts that same love in our hearts. He gives it to us. He what gives it to us. One of the many gifts that God is giving to his children because he loves them. And so John says in his first epistle, we love because he first loved us. And many times... We, we often hear that misquoted. It's, it's not, it doesn't say we love him because he first loved us. It literally, in the Greek, sometimes in the English, it's him is put in there in italics if you have a good translation. But really, in the Greek, it simply says we love because he first loved us. In other words, you now have the capacity to really, for the first time in your life, really love with something approaching the love that Jesus is going to demonstrate in this upper room and has demonstrated in the lives of his disciples for the last three years, um, you have that capacity to some degree to start getting there because God has given it to you. Wow. How are you doing with that? And like you say, too, we still have this flesh, right? And that's where Paul... A couple chapters later, Romans 7 is going to say, guys, I'm still wrestling. I still feel this, this other law, the law of my members, the law of my flesh, pulling me away from what I want. You know, I, I want to love like that, but I don't. I don't. I'm over here, you know, and I have this rabid raccoon in my mind that keeps wanting to get back into the trash can. And I'm trying to yeah, pull it back, right? Thanks be to God who gives, gives us Love gifts. Well, also, as we focus on his death, also leaving the glory of heaven, let's know that he's crushing. You know, it'd be like a king going into politics, so to speak. Well, he's going to say, no, greater love is no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. You're absolutely right. All right, well, I've got a lot more uh, text of scripture here to deal with this. How about this one? I'll leave you with this, and we'll deal. We'll pick this up next time. How about Ephesians 5.25? You, you, gentlemen, do you know what that verse is? Love your wives. Love your wives as Christ loved, loved the church, church, and what? Gave. What did he give? Himself. Can you think of a greater gift for, for God to give you than to give you himself? That's the greatest expression of his love for us is that he gave us himself. You know, we think about, we kind of, 
easily blow over that. He gave us his son. Okay. Guarantee you, that wasn't easy. You know, I mean, I'm not trying to step inside the God bound, but you know what I'm saying is, I know that it would be hard for me to say, oh, you got to take one of your boys and give them up. Which one? Now, he didn't have that choice. Well, you know what I'm saying? But he had to give his only, and it says his only son, of course, we know that. But how hard was that for him? Because he knew what was going to happen. He knew what was going to happen to him, but he knew that it had to happen. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying, as we, I, me, I, me I, I, I take that lightly because it's a norm for us to know that. But it, it had to be tremendously mm-hmm. for him to relinquish his son that he loved so much to come down and do the stuff that he did. You know? And so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the Father and his will. It was also Jesus to do the will of his father. He loved the father. That to me is the ultimate love. And you show that, he showed that respect. And that gives us a model that we should love as Jesus loved. Not only others, but like he loved the father. So he respected, he did his will. Because why? The father told him to. He loved him that much. And he didn't spare that love for enemies. And that's Paul's point in chapter 5. And so, because he says in those verses, too, right before, again, verse 8, between 5 and 8, verse 6 and 7, where he says, on a human level, we can understand how you might give your life for somebody who was a good friend, right? So maybe one of your sons you might sacrifice if it was to save Erica. It'd be really hard, you know, but, but what about your enemy? What about the person who, when you think of them, no matter how good your mood is, your mood gets darker. You know, you're just like, because that's what Paul says in that context. He uses four words to describe us. You know, uh, un, uh, so I get them right. Ungodly, weak, sinful enemies. Okay, in that whole context, verse eight and afterwards as well. The whole context that God demonstrates His unique love. That's like nothing else anybody's ever had or seen. In that he loves enemies that way. And he says for us to do the same. That's what I have to be honest with you. As I'm really thinking about this yesterday. You know, I, I, I got emotional at times. Because, you know, I don't, I love even my daughters, right? But there are times when I have to say it's mixed. And there are times when it's like, you know, I have poured so much into you, and you act like this, and you know, and, and there's that there's that bitterness there that can really grow up, and, and, and you know. But again, what does he say in in, in Luke's account of you know, the uh, Sermon on the Mount? Right, he says three things, three verbs for your enemies: love them, pray for them, and bless them. Bless them anyway. Bless them anyway. That is so convicting to me. <laughs> oh my word, I can't tell you how convicting that is. Because my love is mixed, yeah. right? But you think, you think like that, right? You think like that. You and did. then the father you goes, ah. And you're like, I get it. I get it. Because I do it to you every day, man. 
That's right. That's right. That's right. Every day. See, now you get a little taste of his perspective. I'm pouring so much into you. That's right. And then the father clears his throat, and you're like, oh. You know, we don't get any hint. As a child, I get it. I know what you're doing. We don't get any hint of self-pity on Jesus' part in the upper room discourse. Here are these disciples fighting over who's going to be the greatest. And all these years, he's poured himself out again and again and again and again for them and for others, right? And he's about to face the worst time in his life ever. And 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 they're all still thinking of themselves. He, You're right. He could have been like, what about me, right? And he's, there's no hint of that, no whiff of it in the text. He's still what we would do. focused on them and loves them and prays for them. What an example. And we both designed the first molecule of creation with that in mind, right? That's right. It, it wasn't like, again. oh, here we are, now what? Okay, here we it go. It wasn't, no, yeah. No. It's plot line B. Uh, Heavenly Father, it's uh, such an amazing, amazing truth. We could spend the next, the rest of the day talking about this and still not exhaust it by any stretch. Your love is just astounding. Um, and we've written a lot of poems, and there's still more to say. We've got, I've got some, got some really great poems and music about it. But the truth of the fact is, it stands in such pure, holy brilliance compared to our pride and our selfishness and our hatred and our mixed love. Yeah, we love, and we can kind of understand that, but it's just, it's just blended with this ugly selfishness so much of the time and and we we even don't live up to our own standards how much more do we live up how much less do we live up to your standards especially when we see it demonstrated in yourself and uh so i pray that as we in the coming weeks months uh, however long we are in this text that you would open our hearts to this fresh and new that we would see this example because this is what we are called to but I thank you for the enabling by your Holy Spirit because we can't do it on our own. We just flat out cannot do this. So help us uh, to, to repent. We need to repent and to be aware of this and to have this mind in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, who put others, put you and others ahead of himself. Mm -hmm. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.